Good day, everyone, and welcome to today's program. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, you will have the opportunity to ask questions during our Q&A session. You may register to ask a question at any time by pressing the star and one on your touchtone phone. Please note today's call is being recorded. The information and views conveyed by Energy Intelligence on this call shall not be considered as advice, recommendation, representation, or endorsement, and should not be relied on in connection with any business or investment decision. Any use of such information by any person or organization is at such person's or organization's sole risk. It is now my pleasure to turn the program over to Tom Wallen. Please go ahead. Hello, everyone, uh, and welcome to our October virtual roundtable uh, with Energy Intelligence. My name is Tom Wallen. I'm the editor-in-chief here at Energy Intelligence. And the question we want to look into today is, is what do the Paris climate talks mean for the oil industry? Uh, uh, with the challenges of climate change, I think that everyone knows the effort to decarbonize the economy is a critical issue for for uh, for the entire world. Uh, but it raises particularly difficult challenges for the oil industry and the energy sector, uh, with the, the the challenge in particular of a of a of a transition uh, away from from, from uh, what you might call the traditional uh, structure of the energy business. Um, so to examine these challenges uh, and, and, and issues in the run-up to the, the UN uh, climate talks in Paris in, uh, starting in the very end of November and running through the first couple weeks of December, um, I have with me Ronan Cavanaugh, who's our deputy editor of uh, EI New Energy. And I also have Philippe Roos, who is the senior correspondent for alternative energy, uh, and they both have uh, been watching these issues and, and examining them in, in great detail, and I think they can shed a lot of light on, on what we can expect. Um, you guys ready to go? You're all set? Welcome and uh, ready to start here? Yes. Okay, good, good, good. Yes. Well, Ronan, Ronan let me start with you. Um, uh, my first question is really, what sort of agreement do you expect to emerge from the Paris summit? How firm, how clear-cut will it be? Will the Paris conference lead to the kind of clearer policy direction on climate that the oil industry has repeatedly called for, or will it be more of a kind of piecemeal policy outcome? What do you think? Well, first off, I'd like to say that um, it looks like there will be an agreement, which is very different from Copenhagen. I mean, we're kind of seeing very different political mood music around it, and we're a world apart in terms of where the economy is and where renewables are in terms of kind of price and position in the market. But, and also, kind of while there's more, been more preparation going on and, and, and it's more focused, and kind of in that sense, and another sense is it'll be a more firm agreement, but I think it'll be a lot less clear-cut than the oil industry might have been focused, hoping for. I mean, it'll focus on delivering the basics, but it'll be less clear on some of the specifics, such as um, carbon pricing, pricing. And this is pointing to a more, a more piecemeal approach emerging. But that difference is kind of implicit in this new approach that's been taken up. I mean, this kind of bottom-up, incremental, but also individual approach. And it'll allow some tough decisions to be put off to later. I think the kind of clear decisions to be kind of or issues to be firmed up at Paris are ensuring that the INDCs are stuck to, and this will be kind of one of the main focuses, and as well as ensuring transparency. 
And this is going to f- form part of a framework and um, pointing to more action taking place in the future in order to keep to the two-degree target, which is, which is very much also kind of going to be an aim and in, in, in a way it helps to kind of square the circle of the kind of gap that's emerged between kind of the A and the C's and what's required to keep to it. And we may be able to expect some explicit kind of reference to long-term decarbonisation. So in that sense, it'll kind of set a pathway. And even if the speed and course are not set, you know, the destination may be determined. And I think this points to kind of more uncertainty for the industry going forward, and also perhaps kind of a continuing, continuing ratcheting up of the pressure on them. And I mean, it's already been talked about a new paradigm in the industry, and to kind of many extents it's already taking place. And this is only going to kind of emphasize it and perhaps kind of make it more certain. That it will so it's very much a sort of a process we're talking about and, and not, not something uh, that is going to be definitive and conclusive then. Yeah, it's very much starting off. I mean, it, it, it's starting off a new process to, it, to, to a great extent. Well, Philippe, going going to you, what about carbon pricing? Uh, you know, that was the subject of this very well publicized letter from the European oil majors this spring in support of um, uh, a carbon pricing policy. Um, is there a prospect of a more global approach to this, or will companies continue to face just a patchwork of different systems and prices? Well, ca- carbon pricing is, is not part of the negotiation mandate for Paris. And there's actually no reference to it in the in the draft agreement that's been published a couple of weeks ago. And that's basically because a number of countries are rather reluctant, not necessarily to carbon pricing itself, but to carbon markets. Uh, now, this being said, there's a growing momentum in, fa- in favor of pricing, including this, this letter from the, from the European oil companies. So it's quite possible that something is added to the agreement, something like, I don't know, climate change in the form of CO2 emission as a cost, which should be priced. And since that cost is the same for all, all nations should at some point face the same carbon price, something like that. Uh, What I want to say is that carbon pricing doesn't necessarily mean markets or trading. Carbon can be priced, of course, for a cap-and-trade system, a market system, but also for a tax. And, And those are basically equivalent, from, at least from a theoretical point of view. Uh, if you connect trading system, you're, you're supposed to create a price convergence, of course, but you can also get the same kind of convergence by agreeing uh, on similar levels of taxes. Uh, and this is what actually is what some experts recommend, as this would avoid international trading. If, if a number of countries agree on a tax level, we wouldn't have international trading, and, and some experts say it would be a good thing because it remains kind of a taboo topic for a number of countries, that, that trading thing. Uh, right now you have about something like 40 countries or region, regions across the world which have already implemented some form of carbon pricing mechanism. It's mostly markets, cap-and-trade systems. Quite often, however, it's mixed with taxes. Sometimes it's tax only. Uh, you already have connections between systems. The main example, of course, is, is the European Union. The European Union trading system from the beginning has been connecting uh, the 28 members of the Union. You also have Iceland, Norway, soon Switzerland is going to join. But 
connecting markets uh, that were not designed to be connected at the, at the, at the beginning, it's, it's rather difficult. So it's going to be patchy, most probably very diverse, and, and convergence, convergence will take time. Uh, I'd like to add one thing. There's an increasingly popular approach among experts and, and even some governments, uh, which is the idea of climate clubs, where uh, country, countries would agree on a certain carbon price, uh, uh, the members of the club and the non-members would somehow be penalized, uh, penalized for not being members of the club, for instance, through a, a common import tariff on, or something like that. And even if with that club system, the members would agree on a price, but each one would remain free to choose the instruments it prefers, a tax trading or, or, or a mix of, of several instruments. So, so once again, we can expect pricing, carbon pricing to develop. We can expect some sort of convergence, but it will be a slow and patchy uh, process. Yeah, so, so, so a, a very mixed system and not, not the kind of, kind, of, kind of maybe clarity that the European majors were, were calling for. But there will be carbon pricing, so, you know. Yeah, there will be carbon pricing probably, and the majors, when you read what they what they wrote, they they didn't say we want a market or we want a, we want a tax. They said we would like something, and ultimately we would like convergence. But we we are very much aware that again that it's it's not that easy. Yeah, it will take yeah. time. Well, Ronan, um, you know, assuming that the Paris does result in in these tougher climate policies, what does this mean for the oil oil and gas business in practical terms? And let's start, um, you know, with a look at uh, at natural gas. Uh, can we expect natural gas to move into the kind of bridge fuel role that oil companies have advocated for it? Well, there's nothing to suggest in the INDCs a rush away from gas. I mean, in fact, gas stands to benefit um, in the short to medium term. And, and this is particularly where carbon pricing is applied and, and maybe explains the industry's kind of keenness to see it um, enacted. I mean, coal is certainly the, I mean, the first target and, and the lowest hanging fruit here. And, and you know, this is something the industry has, has also been keen to emphasize lately. Um, and this certainly kind of increased use of natural gas. I mean, I think has, what that we need not to forget is that there is still increasing world energy demand, and um, gas helps to circle the um, square of meeting this as well as climate requirements going forward, and at least that's how the industry would like to see it. However, as, as Philippe has also said, the picture here is, is, is varied, and, and the longer-term future also not so sure. We only have to look at what's happened in the EU, where we've seen gas squeezed between coal and renewables, and kind of this is set to continue as renewable prices are falling. Now, a strong carbon price helps gas, even with half the emissions of coal, but you know it also helps renewables too. I mean, we mustn't forget that, and you know we have every reason to see that continuing too. And I think in gas as well, um, I mean, there's a focus on the upstream emissions too. So any, any investments to reduce kind of flaring can certainly help improve the profile of gas here. So I think the industry steps so far have been very, very um, important. But under the two-degree scenario, this, this implies a peaking of gas. I mean, also in the 2020s, 
And while it plateaus in the 2030s, we're also looking for it to kind of decline after the 20, in the 2040s. So if gas wants to be more than a transition fuel, CCS will be important. However, getting that past the starting block has proved very difficult. Yeah, by, but by CCS, you mean carbon capture and sequestration, right? That's a, Indeed, yes. And that's, that's kind of a critical leg in the long term for, for gas. You see, in your, you it, it, it is a critical leg in the long term for gas, but, I mean, it's, it's still kind of – and it is making some penetration, I mean, particularly in China, but it is struggling to kind of get off the starting blocks and renewables are getting cheaper. So I think that, you know – in terms of a long-term future for gas, I think that the in, in, well, in setting it, a decarbonization target, sorry, Ron, doesn't it hinge a lot on the the whole carbon pricing question and you know what kind of carbon pricing we get? It does hinge a lot on the carbon pricing, and I think that's that's the misfortune too of Paris not perhaps making more explicit re- reference to carbon pricing, and I think that's a worry for the industry as well. Well, let's talk a little bit, Ronan, about oil demand. Uh, you know, transport is is harder to decarbonize. You know, but even you know, Toyota recently announced that it would stop producing conventional engines by 2050. And uh, you know, Saudi oil minister Ali Naimi warned this spring about you know climate's kind of black swan threat to oil demand. Um, you know, are we looking at a flattening of oil demand growth? Uh, and and if so, when would that 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 might be? Well, certainly um, under the INDC, I mean, oil demand continues to grow, but this will be at a slower rate, and it'll, it'll peak to earlier than gas, kind of, if we're looking to get the two-degree target. But clearly you're right. I mean, decarbonization is far harder to, to – sorry, transport is far harder to decarbonize, and it's been much slower so far and perhaps more difficult to achieve. But we're also seeing kind of – progress being made and flattening already. I mean, in markets like Europe, um, the, ga- the market for kind of gasoline and diesel has been in, in a, declining relatively for years, I mean, because of more, more efficient engines. And I think we're seeing that kind of been taken up elsewhere. And I think as further steps are taken, I think deeper hybrid, hybridization being one of them, we could see kind of that, that demand being eroded perhaps further. But I think automakers are going to be really key to this. I mean, and it'll be their decisions ultimately that kind of affect the oil industry more than its decisions. And I think we're seeing them taking greater note of that. And I think, as you said, the move by Toyota readers points to potential kind of sea change if we, if we see other automakers adopting it. And I think ultimately we see consumers going in that direction, although there are increasingly kind of models that are more attractive. And, and sea changes in... in in, in consumer demand has not been unseen in the past. Um, so I think that that does point for big, you know, big, big implications for oil, particularly under a two-degree goal. And I mean, we've always received the re- reference to the changing economy of the markets, but I think it goes much deeper than just price. I mean, we're seeing a kind of inversion almost of the peak oil argument with peak demand potentially on the horizon. And um, that, that reminds me of the story of, of a bear chasing two men one turns to the other, saying, I, we, we both can't outrun this bear. But he says to his partner, I only have to outrun you. <laughs> okay, well, uh, that's, uh, I think that's, that, that's part of the, the whole energy transition, that, that story, uh, probably every aspect. Well, Philippe, um, uh, turning to you, um, how about alternative energy sources? You know, the oil majors have all tried their hand at renewable power, biofuels, 
carbon capture and sequestration, but they've struggled to make a success in these areas. Uh, and and and, that, and they and they and they seem to you know in the in the sort of heyday of $100 oil kind of move move away from that. Um, but as a result of the of the Paris Conference and and other factors, do you expect them to make another push? in this direction, uh, or will they just focus on their core competencies? Well, you have a number of, uh, of oil companies that have already invested the significant amounts of money in, in renewables. You have Total, for example, with SunPower, a U.S. Uh, solar company. You have Statoil in offshore wind, uh, Shell in biofuels. BP re- recently indicated they're looking at new forms of energy. So, so they are trying, as you said. Now, investing in solar, for example, might be a, a, a sensible financial move for an oil company uh, because solar companies are relatively cheap at the moment and they, they do have a huge potential for growth. This being said, uh, they also have very little to do with the core competencies of an oil company. Solar is, is based, I mean, solar panels, it's basically about mass manufacturing. Uh, it's not about big one-off projects, the kind of projects oil companies are used to. So so it's a bit tricky. It's, it's possible, but it's it's a bet. Offshore wind uh, can obviously build on the of an, on an oil company's offshore competencies, but again, we're talking about power markets, and power markets are highly regulated, and oil companies usually don't feel too comfortable about such markets. Uh, one can think of biofuels. Biofuels are much closer to the oil company's core competencies in terms of the chemical engineering, in terms of the marketing, uh, carbon capture and storage, CCS, it's, uh, as mentioned already, would be another interesting one because capture is about chemical engineering. That's something oil companies know how to do. Storage is about geology. So in a way, CCS, uh, it's like the oil industry in reverse. So oil companies would, would definitely have something to say and something to do there. Problem is we're talking about uh, a valueless commodity, carbon. Uh, so far, carbon is worth nothing. So we'd need actually serious carbon pricing before uh, CCS makes a good business case for, for the oil companies or for any company, as a, as a matter of fact. Uh, hydrogen would also be a good uh, a good idea in theory. It could complement oil as a transport fuel. It could complement gas as a gaseous fuel. It can actually be made out of natural gas, and it could progressively switch from being made out of natural gas to being made out of renewable electricity. So it's a good transition vehicle in a way. It's also a great story, energy storage medium, but it it would be a huge bet because it implies a, a lot of money invested and quite a long-term horizon. So it's 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 not an easy decision. The the, the road for oil companies and for incumbents in general is, is is rather narrow between entering a totally new field with all the risks and investments it, it implies. It implies. Uh, and between that and doing nothing, doing nothing can be comfortable because, as Ronan said. After all, oil won't disappear overnight anyway, but the market is going possibly to, to plateau, to slowly decrease. So it's, it's probably doable, but it's not very exciting to stay there and, and, and wait for the, for the market to shrink. So, so I think some companies will try. Some companies will, uh, 
lose, but some of them might very well succeed and become, I don't know, maybe the Apple company of uh, energy or IBM or whatever. So, yes. Reinvent themselves. They reinvent themselves. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. exciting and dangerous at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Well, oil companies are risk takers, so maybe uh, maybe they'll surprise mm-hmm. you. You know. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Philippe, one one more question before we we, we open it up. Um, uh, you know, some of the oil majors clearly want to get back into the climate debate. I mean, that's you know this this uh, letter from the European majors that we've seen. Um, other uh, other actions too. Um, what is the how can they best do that? Uh, is it just a question of messaging, or do they have to do something different in concrete terms? Well, it's it's difficultly, it's definitely tough for them because I mean I was impressed to see how negative the reactions were after the the letter you mentioned, or or last week after eight oil CEOs said we are supporting the two degree global warming target, which is a something very significant, and the the reactions are not only from Greenpeace and activists were negative. The general press wasn't very, very positive. So messaging is probably not enough. Uh, so what can you do? Most of the oil companies insist on the efforts they make to reduce their own uh, greenhouse gases emissions, including CO2, methane leakage, gas flaring, and so on. But that's what everyone is doing in every industry. So, so you, you have to do it. And if the oil companies didn't do it, it would be very bad. But I don't think anybody's going to thank them for that. Uh, investing in renewables and low-carbon technology would probably send a good message. And another one would be if they decided to stay out from some of the high-cost, high-risk projects, such as uh, Arctic oil and gas, oil sands, or deep offshore. Uh, I mean, these tend to be to also be high-carbon projects, but I don't think it's the main point. Uh, because carbon emissions from extracting oil uh, is always small compared to emissions from burning oil or gas. But not investing in such projects would somehow be a recognition that oil prices could remain low for a long time and perhaps forever because, because of climate policies, because climate policies would hurt, would hurt demand. And, and, uh, and and that could be a strong message from the oil company saying we we stay away from such high-cost, high-risk projects because of cost reasons, of course, but also because of, uh, of climate reasons. And, and, and actually the current low oil prices, uh, in a way, could be an opportunity for them because they are, they're, they're already naturally, I would say, cutting on investments because of, climate re- because of uh, cost reasons, not climate or not climate. Uh, and if they could add a climate message to that, it would be it, it would be certainly seen positively, and it would send it would send actually a message with with real financial implications. It would be a proactive message uh, because you know mainstream investors are, are already starting to apply pressure on the sector, and some of them are already starting to divest from coal. You've seen the public pension funds of California the Sovereign Wealth Fund of uh, Norway, uh, AXA, the, the French insurance company. So it's starting with coal, and the next targets might very well be Arctic oil or oil sands. So maybe oil companies could be proactive in, uh, in, that, uh, in that field. 
And so in the current climate where capital expenditures are being cut, in any case, they sort of make a virtue of necessity or something. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and uh, yeah, interesting. Okay, well let's let's move on to some of the questions we've had. A, we've had some questions by email, and I'd like to to uh, uh, throw a couple of those out, um, and then open it up to the audience here um, who who are with us. Um, I have a question from uh, Tony Jr. at Chevron. And he's asking, um, are there any partnerships among other industry players, for example, in transportation and so forth, that are helping drive technology innovation to reduce uh, the carbon footprint? Um, who wants to pick that up? Um, well, I'd point out, I mean, I think we, we, we already the model has been, uh, there are a lot of partnerships in this area that have been kind of quite important. I mean, we've seen that approach taken with, by Shell and BP, with, with, with their long investment in biofuels in Brazil, although BP moved to a sole ownership model. And also, as, as Philippe pointed out, um, Statoil with GE and Technology Partnership. And we've also seen Total partnering in advanced biofuels with, with promising technologies, kind of Amaris and Renmatics. And, and the majors, or kind of the European majors at least, kind of joining up in, in, in Germany under the H2 partnership in, in hydrogen. So I think we are seeing a more kind of we are seeing this model emerging of partnerships and a kind of also, Anthony, I think as Philippe point, said it, that the OGCI points to a more collaborative kind of approach emerging. You know, however, kind of this does vary again from region to region with perhaps Europe kind of and European companies more, more willing to kind of go down this road. Philippe, anything you wanted to add on that? No, maybe we can mention the, the oil and gas climate initiative uh, that we've already mentioned, and, uh, and the CEO last week at the press conference insisted we, we are living and competing in a, in a very tough and competitive market, but still we, we do want to, to collaborate and cooperate on issues such as uh, carbon capture and storage, for instance, or or gas flaring, or methane leakage, and, and uh, stuff like that. So that's, uh, that's something that could turn into something significant. Well, as an extension of that, we have a question from Charles Deland at Shell, who's asking, you know, what will be the impact of the oil and gas climate initiative on the Paris talks and beyond? And just to remind everybody, the oil and gas climate initiative was this um, uh, joint statement that came out, uh, I guess it was last Friday, I think, um, uh, not only from the European majors, but also including some of the national oil companies like Saudi Aramco and Pemex. Um, so, um, uh, Felix, do you want to pick that up? Uh, yeah, I, th I think it's, I mean, it's an impressive uh, set of, uh, of companies, and as you said, it includes uh, seven of the European companies that that have already sent that carbon pricing letter, but, but uh, the interesting point is that you have Pemex and Saudi Aramco and also Reliance Industries of India, and so that could be the, the, the core of a sort of a, of a lobby group or, or, or an industry group that, that might want to play a role, in not in the Paris negotiation itself, because the Paris negotiation itself is a, is a negotiation between governments, but try to say things and then tell, tell government's messages. Yes. Okay. Um, 
Well, I guess, um, operator, are, are, uh, I think we're ready to open it up to questions. Do you have anything in the queue? We have no questions at this time, but as a reminder, if you would like to ask a question, please press star and one on your touchdown phone. Okay. Well, let, let me just uh, – I, I, I have a, another question here um, for Ronan and Philippe. Um, and it sort of, you know, gets gets back to this whole issue of carbon pricing. You know, what level of carbon price would suit the oil and gas companies best? They clearly want to put a squeeze on coal, but it can't be too high, or it would squeeze natural gas too, wouldn't it? Yeah, I, I mean, it's a bit more complicated than just comparing generation costs, because, because as you know, renewables need backup and gas because gas turbines are very flexible. It's, a, it's an excellent backup. So you have also technical considerations to take into account, but, but still, yes, uh, generation costs are, are important. And so in Europe, for instance, uh, our calculations show that gas beats coal at around $50, dollars, not euro. I mean, dollars and euro are almost the same these days, so at around $50 per ton of CO2 for existing power plants in, in current market conditions, uh, $50, it's also more or less the price that makes onshore wind uh, more competitive than gas uh, in, in almost every situation. So I, so I would think that oil companies in Europe would be comfortable with carbon prices at something like 35 or $40 uh, per ton. Uh, by the way, that would put a big question mark on CCS because calculations uh, also show that for CCS to to really make economic sense, you would need a carbon price of, of, of twice that amount, of uh, 70 80 perhaps $100 per uh, per ton. So, so it's not, it, it won't be easy for, for CCS to take off. If you take in Asia and uh, China or India, uh, calculations show that gas would need about $70 per ton, uh, I mean a, a carbon price of $70 per ton to beat coal. The problem there is that gas is already more expensive than wind in uh, in many of these countries. So, so yes, the, the gas versus renewables is a problem there too. And in the U.S., uh, gas is very cheap and it doesn't basically doesn't need a carbon price to beat coal. Uh, and wind is already pretty cheap. Solar is getting there. So, so yes, as, as, you, as you said, in, in, in the U.S., for example, carbon pricing could definitely hurt gas without really helping it uh, beating coal. Uh, so so I, I think it depends a lot on, on, on regions. But uh, something like $30, $40 per ton would probably make many people in the oil industry uh, pretty happy without too much of a, of a threat from uh, from renewables, I would say. Well, given given what you just sketched out there, it does seem that maybe this kind of patchwork approach, approach that's going to emerge from Paris is, is is kind of makes more sense in a certain way. That you can't really, you know, the idea of a you know a, 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 a similar carbon price in every market, given the the discrepancies between them it really isn't, you know, it, it, it would be silly almost, right? I mean, is, is, that, is that an overstatement? I mean, yes and no. I mean, from a theoretical or economist would tell you that the, 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 co the 
climate change is the same for all, and the impact of, of a ton of CO2 emitted in the atmosphere is the same, whether it's emitted in India or China or Europe or, or, or the U.S. So the, the theory tells you since the impact is the same, the price should be the same. But, of course, the real world is a bit different from, from theory. So I think in, in the long term, there will be some sort of a convergence. But as you said, it, 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 for, for many reasons, it, it won't happen uh, anytime soon, most probably. Okay, thanks. Are, uh, um, are there any questions from the audience, uh, operator? We do have a question. We do have a question from Theodore Eck. Please go ahead. Yeah, okay, thank uh, you. Yeah, this is Ted Eck, uh, working with uh, Gas Technology Institute. We just had a meeting a couple of days ago of industry reps, and uh, I got the impression that there's a lot of backing for a carbon tax if it were an alternative to uh, subsidies or mandates to use uh, wind and solar. In other words, you know, the, the, the carbon tax would be what drives the system and not all these uh, mandates and subsidies. So, uh, so, so remove mandates and, 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 and impose the carbon tax? And this right. is from the, the, this is from the, the, um, the, the gas industry, if right. essentially, what you're saying? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, again, from a, for, from a theoretical point of view, it's true that, it, I mean, there's, I think a total agreement among economists to say that the best way to, to deal with, the, with, uh, with carbon is to, is to price carbon. Whether, it, whether it's a tax or a cap and trade is, is, is kind of a secondary debate, but they, they all say uh, carbon needs to be priced, and mandates are a way of pricing carbon. It's, it's an implicit way of, of pricing carbon, but the economists say that it's, it's a hugely inefficient and a hugely expensive way of, uh, of pricing carbon. So, so, so yes, from a theoretical point of view, uh, whether, it, whether it's a tax or a cap and trade, from a theoretical point of view, it's much better, much more efficient, much, much less expensive than a mandate. problem is, uh, or, or the fact <laughs> is that from a political point of view, uh, in, in many places like the U.S., it's it's much easier to have a to have a regulation, an emission standard, or something like that, than creating a new tax or creating a, a carbon market. Yeah, that's because we hide the tax and mandate yeah, the, as opposed to have it right up front where everybody knows what it is. Yeah, it's 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 implicit, as I said, and yes, implicit. It's it's another word for hidden. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Are there other questions from the audience? And we have no further questions at this time. Okay, well let me let, let me ask one more and 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 we can we can wrap it up. And this is really for both Ronan and for Philippe. Um how seriously should the 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 oil and gas business take the divestment movement and the stranded asset argument that's being pushed uh in some quarters? Um and and not so much from a image standpoint, but you know, uh, as a practical uh, matter. You guys want to comment on that? Sure. Uh, I mean, as I said before, the coal industry should should take it very seriously because, uh, as I said, it's already happening. You have mainstream investors starting to step out of the of the coal industry. 
Oil and gas, of course, is a, is a different story for, for two reasons, I think. One is, even with the strongest climate policies, we'll be using oil and gas for quite some time in the future, so there's, there's no real reason to divest from something that's going to be around for, for decades. And from a financial point of view, as an asset class, oil and gas is, is a huge asset class. It's, I think it's like something like $5 trillion, so, so it's, it's quite difficult to do without uh, that asset class when you're, when you're a big investor. So, so they won't divest anytime soon. This being said, well, first of all, I would like to say that divestment is not a bad, mo- a bad word anymore for, for most investors, and, and it's not just a yes or no. Uh, for example, you have SRI investment for SRI for socially responsible investment. It's 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 really gaining traction among uh, among mainstream investors. You have now about uh, 60% of assets managed in Europe that are that apply SRI policies, and about almost 20% in the US. Uh, so of course, it's not only about climate change. It's also about corruption, human rights, social rights, corporate governance, local pollution, and so on. And and each investor has its own themes or preference about about what what he or she uh, understands by by SRI policies. But climate, it's definitely one of them, and it's a growing one of them. And it can lead to selective divestment or selective investment. You You can have a sector, for example, oil and gas, and you can have an investor saying, okay, I'm, I'm applying uh, SRI policies and I'm going to do negative screening. I'm going to consider all the, 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 the shares I have in, in that sector and I'm going to, to sell or to underweight the bottom 20% uh, in terms of climate performance. And, and, that, and that's a way of, it's a form of, of divestment. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's real and it's, and, and it's growing. And uh, regarding stranded assets, you cannot deny that a lot of fossil fuel assets would be stranded under strong climate policies. I mean, that's, that's science. Uh, of course, a lot more coal than oil and more oil than gas, but still some oil and gas would be, would be stranded. Now, from a, an economic and financial point of view, it's also very true that the direct impact of stranded assets on company valuations is, is very small. It's, I mean, if you do a calculation, it's a few percent because basically because we're talking about long-term horizons, long-time horizons. But the, the actual debate is not about whether, whether oil companies are overvalued or not because of standard assets, and they're probably not. It's about whether they're wasting money investing in projects and assets that will or would become stranded under strict carbon policies, and that would mean that means for investors spending money money in capex instead of paying more dividends, and that's an argument they're they're ready to hear and ready to consider. So, so it's also something oil companies cannot just just neglect. I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Ronan, do you have, do you have any comment about this? Yeah, really to underscore what what kind of Philippe said, I think the for Paris certainly or. The, the importance will be probably more symbolic for the oil industry, at least in the short term, at least, and, and ultimately the longer term, and kind of in helping to shape, shape the perception of them as a sort of sunset industry. But, you know, they can still be enormously profitable, as, as you know, a similar sunset industry like tobacco have been. 
And, and the, the big question is whether shareholders, as Philippe said, are happy continuing to take big dividends or want to see companies kind of make investments to change direction and secure a longer-term future. And also for, for, for producers, I think it, it, it raises other, other questions about kind of um, market share perhaps being more important than the price. And I think that's certainly something we're seeing kind of emerging in the market as a trend. Okay, well, thanks Thanks a lot. I think we, it's time to wrap this up. Um, I just wanted to note at the close here that regarding the Paris uh, climate talks, um, Ronan is going to uh, be there covering the, those talks for us for the, the entire two weeks, and he's going to be writing uh, regular uh, items mainly in International Oil Daily, but also in our other publications. So I just uh, wanted to uh, mention that to everyone and to look out for those for that coverage, um, and um, uh, you know, we'll all be looking out for what the the outcome of the the conference is. Thanks, everyone, and have a good day. And um, uh, we'll be we'll be convening again sometime in November, mid-November, for another virtual roundtable. Thank you very much. Goodbye. <laughs>